This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 12th of January 2016, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave, and here is my happy Christmas co-host, Jon. Hey, Jon, how are you? Hi, Dave. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. So, tell me, what have you been up to for the last couple of weeks? Oh, I've been very, very busy actually having vacation for a couple of weeks, which is also nice. So, not that much things to do with uh, installing Hadoop everywhere. I did spend some time playing with a little cluster I built a couple of months ago. I finally got around to putting a benchmark on it. I actually ran the DFS, IO, and TerraSort benchmarks on it. As expected, considering the hardware, it's not built for performance, so the performance isn't that skyrocketing. But it's not very bad either. I mean, everything runs. That's the whole deal for having your own little cluster there, just to be able to try stuff out. And from that point of view, it works brilliantly. So I'm so, kind of happy with that. And of course, we prepared for this podcast a little bit, because as we announced last time, it's going to be a more technical deep dive. So some preparation was in order, I think. But uh, pretty much everything for me. What do you do? Excellent, excellent. Yeah, so uh, similar in terms of the vacation. Lots of time off, lots of winding down, spending time with friends and family, all that sort of thing. Um, not a great deal of Hadoop, I must admit. Um, so, you know, really keeping an eye on some of the news, some of the things that are coming out um, and uh, starting to think now about uh, getting everything wound up ready for the uh, big bang in the new year. Yeah, definitely. New Year's looking busy. My calendar's filling up very quickly now. That's the bad thing about vacation, right? You have two weeks of downtime and then you get hit a full wall of work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to be uh, it's going to be a fun packed couple of months, I think. Yeah, the news section either it's not that much being happening in the world. I haven't heard any new things coming up. Although that Hadoop security network thing became an Apache project recently, didn't it? Uh, that's right. That's right. The it's the Cisco uh, uh, co op co working with Hortonworks to build something for network security. I forget the name now. It's Apache. That's the one. Yes, Apache Metron. Yeah, for those who don't know, it's a uh, yeah, network security system. And what I find interesting there is that it's the first time I see a kind of solution being built around Hadoop and presented that way. It's kind of a, it's not just a project, not just a platform, but really a finished product. Yeah, the the other thing that I'd, uh, I'd noticed um, coming along in the last couple of uh, last week or so, really, was the AWS IoT solution started sort of uh, seeing rumblings of of that um, coming around, and that talks about um, things uh, <laughs> and uses the the concept of things throughout. So you have you know uh, a rules engine, um, authentication, authorization, um, a registry, and um, the ability to persist information about what's happening to these things as they're moving through your IoT um, flow. So sounds similar-ish in many ways to um, NiFi uh, from Nyara. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't know a great deal about the AWS IoT uh, platform, but it, it does look interesting. There's a number of endpoints that it can land information into. Obviously, primarily focused around AWS, but I think uh, 2016 could well be the, the year of IoT. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all, actually. 
Now, is that Amazon thing connected to their Kinetic uh, solution? Because Kinetic is the thing they use for streaming, isn't it? Yeah, I think Kinetic is one of the um, endpoints that it can uh, fire stuff into. Okay. Well, interesting. I mean, more things. If you only had NiFi out there, it would not be as vibrant in the community. If you have a bit of competition in there, multiple projects uh, vying for the crown, so to speak, that's always a good thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And of course, with AWS's IoT solution, you know that the the thing is that you're primarily they're primarily targeting AWS users, of course. Oh yeah, their vendor lock-in is huge. I mean, yeah, it's still yeah, open yeah. source projects, but it all fits together with their little building blocks. And if you want to put something else in there, you're copying stuff all around, aren't you? Absolutely. But yeah, interesting times. Okay, so. Coming up after the break, we've got a section on introducing you to the fun and frivolity that comes with Spark, so stay tuned for that. Welcome back, everybody. As Dave mentioned before the music, uh, this episode we decided to do a little bit of a deep dive, uh, specifically about Spark this time. Spark is a very large subject, we won't be covering everything uh, Spark can offer, but this episode should give everybody a good idea of what Spark can do, where it's useful, where it's not useful perhaps, and give a really general idea of the capabilities in there. So uh, let's get into that. All right, so first of all, uh, you know, who would actually be using Spark? You know, why would you use it over other technologies? And where would you use it? Well, I guess the popular answer today is that everybody should be using it because there's such a big hype over it today. Uh, that being said, of course, just like any tool in a toolbox, it all has its good and its bad points. Now, the thing where Spark really shines is speed. Uh, one of the reasons that Spark got developed or thought out by the guys at Berkeley is that in the olden days when MapReduce was all you had, um, that was a very slow way of doing things, very batch-oriented, and people wanted to get more speed out of it, and one way to get more speed is to eliminate disk access. Spark being an in-memory analytics tool, as it's called, it basically means you will load all your data into memory and then do all your analytics in memory. So you no longer touch the disk at that point, it just gives a very big speed improvement. The disadvantage, of course, of that is that you need a lot of memory to keep all that data in, so it doesn't really fit on one system. And that's where the link with the Hadoop cluster comes. You need a cluster of systems, a cluster of nodes, where you generate one big memory uh, area bucket for data, and through Spark, that's very easily done. Spark will actually do that for you. So who should use this? Well, people that have large-ish data sets, so we're not talking the petabytes here, because having petabytes of memory, mm, that's a bit difficult to get even today if you're not a government-sponsored organization, I guess. Uh, so relatively large, it doesn't fit on one system anymore, and you need speed. And that's also why Spark gets into the realm of the Internet of Things and all streaming applications, because you want to have speed there, you want to have real-time execution of analytics, real-time handling of events. Spark can actually offer that for you. All right. So tell us a little bit about the architecture of Spark. How do, what are the various components and, and how do they all plug together? Uh, well, Spark is more of an ecosystem. Uh, we, we see Spark as an element of a Hadoop's ecosystem, but Spark itself is also an ecosystem. There's a number of components there. 
And those those have grown, of course. When it started originally, Spark Core, as it's called, was basically only a way of distributing your data across your memory nodes. But uh, over time, access things were added because people started using it. And since it's open source, everybody can add whatever they want to it. It was a very popular project, so things were added. And today we have about five components. We have the Spark Core part. We have the machine library, which is a very important part of it, which we're going to talk more in detail later. Uh, we've got an SQL component, which allows you to do simple SQL querying through Spark, again, using the memory analytics for speed. You have uh, GraphX, which is a graph database, uh, not really a database, more of a grasp, graph processing engine. It allows you to define vertices and stuff like that. And finally, you have the thing called uh, Spark Streaming, which is a way of having your Spark jobs streaming it's not real real time it's not like storm storm can do real it's a real-time event processing system spark does uh, something called micro batching where you basically tell spark to execute a certain spark script every five milliseconds for example for a lot of people that is real streaming because real time five milliseconds that's real time enough for them but if you're really into the i don't know stock exchange sticker tape uh, plans you really want more than that, and that's where it gets iffy. So it's really depending on the use case again. Choose a tool you use best. But so those five things, Spark Core, Machine Learning, SQL Streaming, Graphics, that's the big components of it. Now today we're going to basically talk most about Spark Core. Uh, the, sing the single components all deserve their own episode, really. So we're not going to have the time to do everything this uh, in this episode. The way it's set up, well, this uh, memory architecture, uh, Spark has a central component called an RDD, which stands for Resilient Distributed Dataset. And what happens is when you load a piece of data, a block of data into Spark, it'll chop it up in little pieces and distribute that across your cluster. And each node in your cluster will have a little piece of that data there. And the resilient part from the RDD means that if a node fails, the Spark engine will actually see that and replicate that piece of missing data somewhere else. So it is actually fault repairing, which is a nice thing. The distributed, of course, comes from the fact that it's uh, distributed across the cluster and data set kind of speaks for itself, I hope. Apart from that, these RDDs, uh, that's how it's the, the data is, um, let's say, structured on your cluster. The second thing to think about is how the uh, Spark engine itself works, and they have two components. You have something called a driver and something called executors. And the way you have to look at this is when you're working on a cluster, you will always be working on a workstation, which is where you're typing commands, where you have your Python notebook running or your CLI running, whatever. That's where you actually issue the commands, and that's where the the, the master component, if you like, of Spark is running a thing that takes your input and does something with it, and that's what's called a driver program. If you're running with Spark, you only have one driver. That's important to figure, and that's running in a single process on your workstation. The executors, those are the components that are on the, distribute, on the distributed nodes. So each RDD gets handed off to an executor that's running somewhere on your cluster. So you always have one driver which communicates with all these uh, executor nodes. And that's again where this MapReduce algorithm idea comes back. Uh, no way Spark limited doing only MapReduce. But the whole idea of being able to parallelize your analytics means you have to be able to parallelize your data. You have to be able to parallelize your analytics and make sure that whatever you're doing is able to be done in little bits on these little 
RDDs spread around the cluster and then being brought together again, the result of those analytics being brought together to the driver program to, assimil to assimilate, to combine, to get a single result from it again. So this MapReduce way of thinking is very present still in Spark. It's just don't think you're using the MapReduce libraries. That's not what I'm, I'm talking about, the mathematical approach here. Having these executors and the driver very much a map to map reduce. You map your analytics to those executors that are running on the uh, different uh, executor nodes. They do their little thing, come back with the result to the driver, and that's how you get your result from it. Just as in standard map reduce, you have to be careful here again that whatever you're asking the system to do is embarrassingly parallel. So it must be parallelizable. You can uh, make an average of, it, of a number of numbers, easy to do, because each little exit can do an uh, averaging of its own little part. Give that average to me, and I average those averages. That's easy to do. But other things which are really dependent on previous calculations or just depend on all of the data in the data sets, those things are very hard to do in a MapReduce way and are also hard to do in a, a Spark way. So that's that limitation is still there. Again, just like MapReduce was supposed to be the one tool that did everything, today Spark gets that reputation a bit, but still it's a tool that's good for certain things. Make sure it's a tool that you need. Excellent. So that's uh, you're absolutely right. Spark has a, a massive uh, groundswell of support uh, around it right now. And in fact, lots of, uh, lots of people and lots of organizations are picking it up, um, you know, almost regardless of whether it's, it's the right tool for what they're looking to do. But it's without a doubt very powerful, and the community behind it are uh, accelerating very quickly. Okay, so tell me more about uh, MLlib. That, that seems to be one of the, the core components um, that uh, gets a lot of attention with Spark. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, MLlib is almost every time the reason why people uh, decide to include Spark into a Hadoop cluster. And the reason is simple. Uh, the combination of having this RDD distribution over your cluster and a very powerful and complete machine learning library, that's very easy to get people started. At this point, uh, I'm in no way a expert machine learning guru, whatever, but even I can use Spark to do simple regressions or even build recommendation engines just by uh, standing on the shoulders of the guys that built this machine learning library, you just have to figure out which algorithm fits your little problem. For a recommendation engine, you use alternating least squares, for example. Uh, random forests are used a lot as well. Just to find, figure out what the best algorithm is, import that library, take a look at the documentation, and basically it's just a way of uh, training a model using the train command on the module. And it it's almost magic. It's not, of course, you have to the more knowledge you have on how it works on the inside, the more performant, the more the better your result will be. But f just for people starting out, it's very easy to make it work. And machine lib for sp the, the Spark machine lib has become so prevalent these days that a lot of the other guys are actually moving over to Spark. The most uh, notable one is uh, Apache Mahout. Apache Mahout was one of the biggest uh, machine learning libraries out there before Spark uh, caught the limelight. And uh, at the end of last year, they actually kind of reinvented themselves from being a machine learning library to becoming a machine learning programming methodology, which also has a bit of a toolkit in there. And they're actually running now 
the uh, Mahout kind of made a, a little sub project called Samsara, and that's basically Mahout on Spark. The idea of having your Spark environment out there, just load in the Mahout components and reuse it on your Spark uh, cluster. That way, the Mahout guys don't need to figure out how this memory space needs to be managed. That's all Spark can do, and they can really focus on the machine learning aspect of it. And as they say on their own blogs, they kind of want to move their own vision to not just being a library, but more being an approach on how you should do machine learning. Now, that's still very young, so I'm really looking at uh, what they're doing at the moment, seeing how they're going to evolve. But that's definitely one big feather in the cap of Spark, how they can really have a almost competing product become a broader product, where they, some of the components become more than uh, the components. So that's a very nice way. Again, open source for the win. It's really a nice way of seeing how that works. And there's other things. I mean, uh, you have H2O, which is a very well-known uh, JVM as well for machine learning, which is also going towards Spark. At this moment in time, they're still using a product called Tachyon to kind of merge two separate clusters, a Spark cluster and an H2O cluster, but being able to work on the same data set. But if you look at what they're actually uh, presenting at uh, f uh, events and forums, you see them also growing much closer to the Spark uh, way of doing things. Uh, going closer to the Spark way of doing things to actually integrate more tightly as well. So definitely that works very, very successfully for, for everybody at the moment. And of course, people who want to use Spark, they are the big winners here because they get more and more tools in their little Spark toolbox or little machine learning toolbox there. And at this point in time, pretty much everybody is or could use it. And you have to really think a big wide gamut here from a factory with machines that have sensors and you want to do some predictive analytics to find out when a certain component is going to fail based on previous knowledge. That's a prediction uh, model that fits into Spark very nicely. On the other end of the spectrum, things like fraud detection. If you want to have to make sure, if you want to make sure that nobody's plundering your bank account, well, banks are actually using Spark and Spark kind of solutions to figure out if this person taking money out of the wall in this city in the world is that you? How much percent chance is that, that that actually is you? Is it somebody else who skimmed your card? Again, it's a kind of predictive anal analytics in there. If you look at in between the things like a Amazon or a Netflix who want to give you recommendations, you bought all of these things, well, maybe you want to have this as well. It kind of fits nicely with your buying, uh, buying habits. That again is a nice uh, recommendation engine for, uh, in Spark. So basically through the machine learning, it opens up such a big wealth of possible use cases. It's really the, the poster boy for Spark at this point. For me, the core Spark, the way they're doing distributed resilient data sets, that's the big magic that they're doing. But for the users of Spark, this machine learning things, uh, that's it. Yeah, the, the, the two things that I think are interesting about Spark from, from that perspective are, the first of all is the thing you mentioned about Mahout. Uh, that, I mean, they were, as you say, the, the darlings of, of machine learning for, for quite some time, um, going back a little way. But they, they really sort of seem to have lost their way a little bit and sort of, uh, as, a, as a project, it, it sort of uh, it stagnated. And then, of course, Spark just exploded onto the scene. Um, and they, they have, I think they've done an interesting, you know, an interesting move. They've embraced the Spark movement. And it'll be, it will be even more interesting to see how they continue to, to develop and progress that particular direction. 
Um, the other thing that on, on the Spark side is if you want to look at uh, an organization that's doing a lot with Spark um, out there in the real world, take a look at uh, on SlideShare some of the stuff that Spotify have released um, about uh, some of their experiences with, with Spark. They're, they're operating Spark at some pretty, pretty significant scale. So they're doing some really interesting stuff. Yeah, if you look at SlideShare, there's a lot of uh, organizations putting their stuff on there. And it's very interesting uh, slides, usually. Because people using Spark, people using open source, usually not too shy to share what they're doing, even the, the core stuff. So it's very, yeah, very good point. Okay, so this, this Spark sounds awesome, um, but there must be some gotchas. There must be some things to be thinking about that uh, that we want to inform our audience where they could get tripped up and maybe help them to avoid those points. Well, I've helped a couple of people uh, on the first steps in uh, Spark and a couple of things do creep up every single time. And it's a bit to do with getting used to this way of programming because on a standard olden times MapReduce uh, kind of workflow, that was batch oriented. You kind of built something, pushed it out there, waited two hours for it to come back and looked at results and iterate. Spark has a model that's very different, where it's much more interactive, and a big uh, push for that came from the notebooks, the IPython, or these days it's called Jupyter, and Apache Zeppelin, the new up-and-coming notebook. Those tools are kind of the web interfaces that allow you to type Spark code and execute step-by-step, step, see the results, and you can iterate a lot more quickly because you can iterate smaller steps. You don't have to build the whole thing, submit it, wait for the return. You can really iterate as an interactive programming paradigm. And that does cause a couple of issues because if you want to see the result of a certain process, a certain little function you put in there, you typically would put in debug strings. You would say, print this variable here so I can see what's happening. The problem is that as long as that little function is running on your driver, the thing's running on your workstation, that's fine. But if a little code gets executed on the executor, that executor node has no connection at all with your display, with your terminal. So it can't do printouts. Those print statements will actually garbage your memory, and you can actually run out of memory with a lot of uh, print statements in there. So the trick there is to make sure that you only put the print statements where you need them. If you want to debug a simple function, do it locally on the driver just as a function. Don't call a map or whatever on that uh, data set yet. Uh, we're not going to go too deep in the, f in the function calls in uh, Spark because we're running out of time already. And that's a whole episode in its own. But just be careful with print statements. That's going to kill you. And... Connected to that, there's one command that everybody who uses Spark starts using immediately, which is called collect, which simply says, okay, I've got all this uh, data in the resilient data sets on all my executor nodes. I want the result now, so collect everything. And that will actually indeed collect everything from all your nodes and try to store it on the memory on your workstation, on your driver. Now, unless your driver has a couple of terabytes of memory, <laughs> that is going to cause a problem. That's also why collect shouldn't be used. And you have things like take, where you can say, uh, give me only the first 10 or the first 100. You can actually take a subset of whatever you need from the, the data set. But this is things like that, which people that are just trying to start out with Spark, they hit this wall and they're trying to debug it and it doesn't work and it crashes. And eh, this is a piece of crap. No, as I said before, it's almost magic. If you know which libraries to use, you pretty much don't need to know what you, you need to know what you're doing anymore. 
but that's not entirely true of course if you have some insight it will really help you get up to speed with spark a lot faster so if you want to start working with this thing get a good book go onto the online education sites talk with your hadoop partners get some baseline information education going on there it's going to accelerate your 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 spark journey so much last thing to think about is yes spark can access the files on your local disk or on the hfs file system on the compute nodes the question is is that something you want to do because basically you're using spark for speed you're loading all your data in memory which by the way is a bit of a bottleneck when you start a spark program once it's in memory it's fast but if you have i don't know 40 terabytes of data to load first you're going to have to wait until those 40 terabytes are loaded from disk into memory so even though the spark analytics is fast getting the data into memory that's a wait and at the end of the the, the, the whole analytics you have to maybe write 80 terabytes back to disk that's also a bit of a wait so when you're measuring benchmarking your spark uh, stream always start from the beginning loading data in cleaning it up and go all the way to the end getting the end result somewhere in a persistent state somewhere on a disk or i don't know tape i guess or printer even better <laughs> punch card punch cards the way to go yes they never should have gotten rid of those right they make lovely bookmarks <laughs> well i still have a lot of dot matrix printing paper lying around but punch cards nope don't have those anymore i'm afraid all right, so I think you've touched on some of these things but uh, throughout, throughout your explanation. But uh, do you want to just uh, highlight for the audience the main use cases for Spark? Uh, well, main use case, uh, if you want to decide if Spark is a good fit for what you want to do, first thing is look at the size of your data set. Do you have enough memory to fit it in there? If it doesn't fit in there, it will slow your process down. I think we have a question on that later, so I'm going to keep that information for then. Um, if it does fit, just look if it's worth your money because the nodes you're going to use for uh, a Spark flow will be somewhat different from a traditional Hadoop node because you will need more memory, so your nodes will get more expensive. So if having a batch workload that takes 10 minutes versus a Spark workload that takes, let's be aggressive, one minute, if that's worth the money, do it. If it's not worth the money, if it's something you do at night anyway, well, those are things to think about too. Once those things, those choices are made, then well, the moment you're doing anything with machine learning, Spark is basically a no-brainer. So anything from fraud detection, predictions, recommendation engines, it's a, a no-brainer. There is always a little battle that peaks up its uh, ugly head between Storm and Spark. When you talk about streaming, you'll have the people saying Storm is all, can only do streaming, and the other people say no, Spark can only do streaming. Uh, basically, they can both do streaming. They kind of meet in the middle. I've said before, Storm can do the real, real-time streaming. Spark has micro-batching, which approaches very, very, very closely. If you're going to use machine learning, you have Spark on the system already, so just go with Spark streaming. If you're not doing anything with Spark, then maybe Storm is better for you. Yeah, as always with a lot of these technology choices, the, the answer is it depends. Go, go with whichever technology best fits your your organization, your organization skills, your team skills, those sorts of things. Um, if there's if there's several things that could potentially fit what you're looking to try and achieve. That's a very good point, actually. Uh, looking at what kind of skills you have in the company already is very important. If you don't have any skills at all, you're free to choose, of course. But typically, people are looking at machine learning because you have somebody who's already doing machine learning in some kind of language. 
just look what the best fit is. Definitely. All right. I think we put an end to this discussion for now. As said before, this is a first more generic overview of Spark. We will be revisiting the subject and go into more detail on the little components in future episodes. But for now, we're going to stick a pin in this. And when we get back after the music, we will be handling some uh, listener questions. And we've picked some that are relevant to Spark, of course. So stay tuned. We'll be back soon. Welcome back. In this last section of the podcast, we answer questions we receive from you, our listeners. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the podcast, please send an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org, use our Hadoopcast Twitter handle, or go to our website, www.roaringelephant.org, where you can find out more information about the podcast, and there's a contact form for you to submit your questions. So, let's get started with the first question. Um, what happens when all my data doesn't fit into memory? Oh, well, basically you die and go to hell. Wow, that sounds bad. Okay, less aggressive then. Uh, well, it's something you have to avoid. The whole uh, speed improvement you get from Spark is from that in-memory piece of it. So the moment that it doesn't fit there, uh, Spark does have a spill-to-disk facility that will spill off data that doesn't fit to a disk, but you're hitting that disk at that point, and you're pretty much losing most of your speed um, improvement there. Now, in some situations, it might not be that bad if you just spill at the end of your analytics and it has to go to disk anyway. You might say, okay, but still, it'll work. It has capacity for that, but you should try to avoid it. Good to know. Okay, a second question we had. What is the security like for Spark? Uh, so this is a bit of a tough question, really, because the, the answer is that it's emerging. Um, the security for Spark has been one of its weaker points for quite some time. Since about uh, 140 onwards, um, Spark has started to support Kerberos and running Kerberized clusters. Um, that has improved considerably over uh, through later versions. But in terms of the full role-based access control uh, methodology... Um, pretty much every major Hadoop distribution is uh, working towards solutions for that. And uh, you know, the Spark community is also uh, looking at uh, things for themselves. So in terms of the, the, full, uh, the full picture, it's not quite all there yet. So you need to bear that in mind uh, and consider that when you're looking at rolling out Spark. Yeah, just like to add that the simple fact that Spark was lacking Kerberos support was a major reason for it not being present in a lot of the uh, Hadoop distributions out there. Just not having that security component in there delayed their adoption. But since it got such much hype and everybody wanted to use it, it's getting there pretty rapidly now. But as you said, a lot of work still to be done. Okay, so next question. Uh, why Spark on Hadoop instead of just on a standalone cluster? Uh, it's a good question. I've had this question from uh, customers before. And on the one point, I can understand the question because setting up a whole Hadoop cluster only to do Spark is a lot of extra work if you don't need it. The whole thing is if you don't need it. Basically, the kind of use cases you see today are never limited to only Spark and having your data lake where your data is present to be 
analyzed with Spark, but also by Hive Analytics or Storm Streaming or whatever, that gives us a big boost and it really helps use cases along to have a Hadoop system under there because at that point, things like management, security, uh, monitoring is all figured out and ready to run. You just add the Spark component and you're ready to go. So even though it's a bit of an extra load at the beginning, it really pays dividends at the end. And if you look at the fun fact, actually, I, for preparing for this podcast, I went to look at the Apache Spark uh, project webpage, and on their fact, the first uh, item on there is about Spark and Hadoop and how it is such a beautiful marriage together. So, yeah, the 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 thing that I often mention is you're you're always going to have need somewhere that you're going to be able to store this data persist it for a period of time you're usually going to have uh, some other tools that you're going to be interacting with that data with whether it's you know core hadoop tools or whether it's third-party components like uh, sas or whatever that you're you're going to be manipulating that data with as well so uh, it's just for me spark is definitely just part of part of the larger hadoop ecosystem itself I don't see very many organizations just purely using Spark. You need methods to get your data into the into the platform in the first place, methods to uh, export the data out in some cases, uh, connected to other platforms. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely see that uh, being the case. Yeah, it's the whole, it's a tool in your toolkit. It's not a single purpose, does everything. Absolutely. Okay, next question. Python, Scala, Java, or something else for Spark? For me, this is one of the easiest questions because uh, the answer is, well, you know, whatever you're most familiar with. Um, all of the uh, languages are reasonably well-developed. There are some that are slightly ahead of others in terms of um, the adoption of the Spark community and therefore their uh, maturity. But they are starting to level out. Some things do still pop up slightly, uh, slightly faster in the, the Scala uh, language. But for the most part, I would say go with go with whatever is most familiar with your developer community. That's going to be far more important than uh, uh, picking up a whole new language just to do Spark. Yeah, I totally agree. Although with the uh, coming of Apache Zeppelin, the new Spark notebook, the question becomes less relevant. Because where the original uh, notebook, the Jupyter one, you chose a Python notebook and then the whole stream had to be in Python or you chose a Scala one and everything had to be in Scala. Zeppelin actually allows you to specify what interpreter to use for every cell in the notebook. So you can actually mix and match uh, Python, Scala, Java, whatever you've put in there. There's about 20 different interpreters at the moment, I think. So it's no longer a question of what's best for the whole use case, but what's best for this little particular function or part of the script, which makes uh, the choice even easier. And if you started with Python as your primary choice at the, at the beginning, and you pick up some scale along the way, it's a lot easier now to Zeppelin to just modify small bits and pieces of the script to make them more performant by changing those little bits into Scala. Now, the one thing I would like to add is that Spark is a bit of an odd one out here. Most of the Hadoop ecosystem is built on Java. So using Java is a good thing because you're staying close to the, 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 the software, the source code of the software itself. Spark actually was written in Scala. As far as I know, Scala is closer to the core of Spark. So you will probably get a better performance using Scala. 
But again, as you said, if it takes you three months to learn Scala, it's better just write your Python today. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, and uh, next question, and probably final question for today, is can I access data on HDFS or local disk from my Spark script? Uh, the answer is yes. The question is always, should you? Again, it's a bit in the same vein as the first question about uh, does it fit in memory. The moment you hit your disk, it will cause latency, of course. But uh, there are libraries in Python, Scala, Java that allow you to do all these things. Uh, it's not just an F open and it'll work. You have to really use the HDFS uh, libraries if you want to access HDFS. But you are able to open a file descriptor in your driver program and the executors will be able to use it. So that's the advantage of coupling the distributed HDFS file system and the distributed uh, nature of Spark together. So yes, you can, but always ask yourself the question, should I? Is it a good idea? Good advice. Okay, well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed this Warning Elephant podcast. I know we have. We will be back in two weeks' time with a new episode when we will be trying something different. We're not letting the cat out of the bag just yet. Uh, just stay tuned and see what we come up with. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information. Also, we're totally convinced you have much more interesting questions than the ones we can figure out. So please go to www.roaringelephant.org and submit your questions about Hadoop and Big Data. We will be happy to discuss them in upcoming episodes. Until then, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. Cheers.